Welcome to season three of the Lifestyle Chase, and I'm your host, Chris Little. This podcast features high performers who have found a way to live their best life while balancing their health, wellness, friends, and family. To help this podcast grow, please share it on social media, rate five stars, tell your friends, and check out the past 140 episodes and counting. You can follow me on Instagram at Christian Little and at The Lifestyle Chase. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. All right, so welcome to The Lifestyle Chase. It's a busy week of podcasting. Today, I'm bringing you the second episode of the day. This is episode 181, and I am joined by the one and only Dr. Rena LaFrance. How are you doing today? Good, good. It was a, not a bad day, so I'm doing pretty good today. Well, I mean, when you talk about that, like, reflecting on this as being not a bad day, what would be one of the most challenging days for you in the past year? just to kind of give people perspective of like kind of what you're up against. Well, um, I guess starting right back at the beginning of this pandemic, life changed quite drastically for all of us, right? So I had just gotten back from a trip from Hawaii and California and they weren't sure, quarantine, no quarantine, what are we supposed to do? Um, and they ended up putting me off Um, within a day or two sort of being back in the hospital because it was right at the time when everything changed and then I have yet to be back in the hospital at this point so I have been um, full-time working in at home and virtually and so on so sorry you can hear some uh (laughs) no worries there's some cooking going on in the back and it looks like the fire alarm's been on no worries this is live (laughs) (laughs) Um, so a lot of my audience might not know who you are. So if you're going to introduce yourself, like what are the things that you're most proud of? And then just like, who are you as like a professional kind of thing? What are the things I'm most proud of? Oh gosh, that's hard. I feel like we're all on a journey and, and you know, it's a, it's a path that moves forward into any different period of time. You're different and you want different things. I mean, I've achieved a lot academically. I have four degrees. I've, you know, studied for 13 years. I'm a physician. Um, my specialty is psychiatry. I do health and wellness. I do obesity. Um, I just started a private practice in the middle of this pandemic for women, for love and relationships and human sexuality. So, I mean, I've done a lot, but I'm proud of person I am the friend I am the mom I am there's lots of things that I'm proud of and there's maybe not one thing that stands out completely but it's um it's all of those things that sort of made me who I am right now and and I'm proud of myself for managing through this pandemic um with a good support network as a single mom and as a physician and as I said um never returning to the environment that I worked in and and you know losing contact the way that we usually do with our teams and it's been it's been rough it's been it's been rough being separated I think that's the hardest thing and so I think I'm most proud right now of the resilience of being able to keep it together and keep it together for my patients and keep it together for my kids and my friends and my family um when there were some low points and there were some massive amounts of struggle you know mental health wise and and you know emotionally going through this and you know, riding the waves like we all have and not really knowing when it was going to end and still isn't over, right? So. Well, those are some really important points to talk about. Like, I mean, how often do we actually go back and think about like our ability to just show up no matter whether we knew whether when it was going to end or not? Like, it's easy to show up for something when we can see the finish line, but when we can't necessarily see the finish line, it becomes a lot more challenging and just that ability to uh, stay connected. Um, I promised Dean Somerset that I was going to give him a shout-out. Ironically, I gave him a <laughs> shout-out the episode prior to this, so um, he can listen to both episodes. He'll, he'll know both <laughs> guests. But uh, I wanted to give a shout-out to Dean Somerset. He's actually going to be on the show sometime in September. Um, awesome. And with that being said, like, give him a plug. Like, what... How has he been integral to you in in your fitness journey? Dean is an amazing human being to start off with. He is chill. He is patient. He is calm. 
there's never been a time where I've seen him rattled like ever that I walked into that gym. Um, he adapts well. He, you know, he already was set up to be able to do virtual and so on. But there were periods of time where I just couldn't get the motivation. I couldn't for love or money, especially in the winter. You know, it was just a, a very difficult period of time to feel like I could do that and do everything else that I was doing. And he just quietly stood by and was there and he offers support and he offers training and it's safe. It's tailor-made to you. It's progressive. You know, we have fun. I look forward to seeing him when I, when I go, we're always talking nonstop, mostly me. <laughs> He's very supportive and I've just known him for a really long time and I just trust him you know I just trust him I know when I walk into that gym and I say hey Dean these are my goals and he might you know help me shape them he might give me some modifications around what I should be trying for um, but he is always always on your side so if that's a plug and a half I, I mean I just think he's one of the the best guys I know and a, a massive support during this period of time. Like, and I don't think he knows how much, but it was a huge anchor for me, especially when I could come back into the gym for those periods and just be in the energy of the gym and, and be with him. He's just very steady, you know? So. Absolutely. And I mean, that's the best way to, to describe a person just how much support that they can offer. Um, any new trainers that happen to be listening to the show should go back and listen to the time when Dean came earlier in the show's history. I think it was like in episode 30 or something like that. I might be wrong. But if you skim Pat back, um, he offers a lot of insight that's helped me a lot in my career so far. Um, and I put him in the, the intro video of the podcast for a reason. So he's a good dude. So if, if anybody isn't already aware of him, be aware of him now. And we move on with the podcast. We got our Dean shout out out of the way. <laughs> um, so something that amongst many things that made me think that you'd make a great podcast guest is the multiple things that you've done in your career. And oftentimes I take my guests through the time machine to just kind of like pinpoint a period of time. And it's always random. I very rarely have any kind of like a context to it. For you, we're going to go in the time machine back 20 years. Where does that put you? What was life like? Kind of paint me a picture if, if possible. 20 years. Okay. Oh, my God. Um, I'm a resident and life's a little rough. <laughs> I'm, I'm going around doing different rotations. Um, I've been in Edmonton maybe a little over a year. Um I am living that resident life on call and learning and moving and having to study and try to maintain a personal life and new province, new city, but mostly settled in and mostly settled in with friends. I've finished my rotating internship year. Um, so just finished that. So that would have been the year with all the other specialties, family and internal medicine and all that. So that's, that's quite the year. And I'm now getting introduced to the specialty that I'm in and trying to decide, is this where I'm supposed to be? Am I, you know, have I done the right thing? What am I, how am I going to feel about this? Because um, you're making these decisions pretty young, right? And you're making decisions about the rest of your life and the future of your career. And I remember that first rotating year, I'd had a lot of offers from the other specialties to switch out, to go into family, to go into peds, to go into internal. Um, and I stuck with with psychiatry because I wanted to work with kids and I just love the story. I just love the idea of being able to shape people's lives with words and, and hear their story and kind of figure out what they're about and then, you know, kind of be able to influence that and, and help them. And lots of what I did when I was a resident wasn't what I wanted to do, but you just do it, right? You go through what you have to go through. And when I finished my residency, I did a grand rounds, right? So speaking to all the doctors and the misericordia saw it and they were just starting a center for weight and health, basically a pediatric obesity program. And they recruited me out of my residency straight into the Ms. And that's how my career started in, in weight in obesity and health and wellness and prevention. And it, if I, it was one of those things that, I mean, how would you know it was a topic that I picked that it was going to give me like a huge piece of my career, you know? So it, it's, it's just, again, 
you end up somewhere you're trying to figure out if you need to you know if you're in the right spot and it shapes itself as you sort of move forward well it's but i live in the resident life and it was <laughs> not it was it's, it's better now even in a pandemic <laughs> it's better now i mean i i'm friends with a lot of doctors that are fairly early in their career and i I know how challenging it is just from, from watching them and observing them. And it's just like, they, they put so much into the education that goes into it. And there's a lot of sacrifice and they're not always able to do the most convenient thing. Sometimes they have to do what's difficult and they don't always know what's going to happen. They just have to uh, put one foot in front of the other. Um, what inspired you to go into that just because it's like so much education that leads up to that period of time where you're in residency, like what inspired that move? Like why, why that and not something else kind of thing? Like what, what, so why, why medicine or why? Yeah. Yeah. Like when you were in high school, like what was going through your head? Were you always thinking medicine or were you thinking a, a multitude of things? What was the it, inspiration? It, um, it was an interesting path that way. So I, humbly I'm a smart girl and I graduated at the top of my high school and um you know I academically was always extremely strong and I graduated at the top of my high school of any year that had ever been to that point so I could have done anything but I was you know the child of immigrants and my parents are Indian and medicine is the peak of what you're supposed to do and so there was a lot of familial influence to go into medicine. Had I been left up to my own devices, I probably would have done an undergrad in history and probably law, probably then politics was sort of what I was more inclined to do. But I had a very academic family and, and the honest truth is they wanted me to have a very secure profession. And I understand why now that we're in the middle of this pandemic and I'm working more now than I've worked maybe in my entire career, trying to keep up with, with the load. But, um, you know, they came from very different circumstances. They worked really hard to, to take care of us kids and give us a big future. And, and I was good at medicine. I was good at biology. I was good at, I was good at everything. It didn't, nothing came out in the path that was like, I need to do this. I, I could have done whatever. And so, um, except physics, I hate it, but other than that, <laughs> I could have done whatever. Um, and I, went into medicine and I knew that I had to find the right spot in medicine. And, you know, you're a young kid. For me, I was 20, 19, like 1920 when I started. And I did, what did I know about sickness and death? What did I know about people dying in front of me? Right. And so it was hugely eye-opening um, to be faced with all of that and not really know how to process it. And it was going through it that I realized that, I mean, I was, meant I thought to help people process what was happening through their lives and then it sort of led that way I could have done the other areas of medicine too I suppose I mean everybody can but you you pick and gravitate to what you think you're going to be good at right but I feel like when you're on your life path there's a lot of different ways you could go you could end up a lot of different ways but I can say right now what I'm doing right now between peds and the kids and and um and the obesity work, and now this new practice, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And it was always supposed to be this way. No matter what I've gone through up to this point, everything has built me to the person that I am now. And, and that is um, made me in the best position to be able to offer the kind of care that I offer now to patients and, and people, basically. For sure. And I mean, when it comes to all of that, you spoke to how you had a lot of strength when it came to academia was there ever anything that just popped out out of nowhere that was like something that challenged you in those years? Like, was it, was there a topic within your, your subjects or maybe just like the fact that you had to deal with like tough, like emotional situations, like helping people through things or learning about things like grief and trauma and all that stuff. Like what, what tested you the most in like the first five years of your education? Um, first five years of my education would have been undergrad. So, um, so that wasn't a hard, that wasn't a hard time. Physics, I don't like it. <laughs> so my dad is a physics teacher. So thankfully I had help. I had a tutor at home. I had built in support. So that would have been undergrad. And I did a micro degree, so microbiology, which has helped quite a lot with the understanding for me and with this virus and everything else. And that was, 
you know, it's very specific learning. So you don't, you, you, when I got into medicine, all of a sudden the scope of what I had to know was huge. So you're trying to master a huge volume of informa information. Um, you know, like I said, I got varied strengths. So I loved anatomy, you know, those kinds of things didn't bother me. I had a little bit of um, trouble with autopsies. That was a first for me to, to have to see a dissection. The first one I ever saw was a five-year-old. That was really tough for me. And I had the instinct to run out of the room. And um, I looked around at my classmates. A lot of them didn't have the same look that I did. So I wasn't sure what that was about, but I, that was hard. Um, I've had moments where I've lost patients. I won't get into too much detail about that, but I've had a, a couple of incidents that um, shaped my life. One of them was a loss, um, and it had partially to do with uh, a patient who um, there was, I feel, a certain amount of bias because of her weight, um, and, and, and it led to um, an unfortunate outcome. And that partly shaped my advocacy within, within obesity, within um, um, weight, around weight bias, around the prejudice that a lot of people face for um, having all kinds of judgments made about why they're the weight that they are. And that was partly shaped from that experience. So I think the loss of patients, there was a few that have st stood out of my mind um, that were extremely difficult for me. I mean, there's a couple of times in the merge, potentially could have gotten my butt kicked. <laughs> that stands out. You know, it's very unpredictable in that environment. Um, those kinds of things, right? That, that Those were the difficult things. Never the information itself. Obviously, studying for the final exam is your Royal College. You, you feel like you're going to, if you fail, it, life is over because, you know, you've worked all of these years for this thing. So that was a bit nerve-wracking. Um, but in, in general, I, I tried to flow with it. And, you know, I'm a high achiever. I'm highly competitive part of myself. So, um I probably made my life more miserable than it actually was at the time, you know, going through it. But, but I've learned a little bit since then about trying not to do that. I still do it, but not as much as I used to. Yeah. And that all makes sense. It's always curious to like see people's journeys and like understand um, where things take them because it's like some people encounter their struggle right before they take a big leap or right before they go to that next step. And then some people encounter the struggle after they've been comfortable with something for a while. And like to just explain that more, like um, some people are going to have like within the training world, the world that I'm most familiar with, a person might have a really tough first year, but then other people might have a really tough like eighth year because it's like something took them way outside of their comfort zone. Like you talked about how Dean Somerset was prepared and able to do virtual training because he had built that into his skill set prior to, and he was already kind of doing stuff like that. But then for someone who is used to being in a brick and mortar facility and has never done anything virtually, it can completely throw them off. And then bringing it back to you with your ability to just push through all the academia beyond like the, the undergrad, like going through to every level up until like residency and being able to just push through and find solutions to things. And like, as you say, you didn't like physics, but you found solutions to that. Um, it's, it's cool perspective because it's kind of like, we're always going to encounter or have these struggles that come against us. And it's just like how we approach those things. And we're always going to have unpredictability in our career or in our personal life. And it's just kind of how we approach that. Um, out of curiosity, yeah. at what point did fitness enter your life? Like, has that been like a lifelong thing or was that something to help with stress or, or what was that like for you? Well, I was, when I was little, I was pretty scrawny. So I was like a scrawny nerd, which did not lead me to the gym life early, <laughs> but I, never I mean I was just like a giant brain so that's what I was that's what I accepted um and then I got into I mean my my dad was always always lifting weights in the basement he ran he played soccer he was like a sporty guy my mom wasn't sporty at all um and I was scrawny so I didn't have like I just didn't think I could do like exercise stuff right and then um 
I got into like undergrad and I got I gained a little weight and you know started doing a little bit more and I'd always kind of lifted weights even when I was like 13 or 14 we always had them in the house so I just always did them um, but I didn't really know what I was doing but I did them um, and then I did in med school too we had a gym right in our so I'm, I'm from Winnipeg and Bannatyne campus had a gym that they built for for us to have that for, for the health students all of us um, so I had access to that I did that a bit and then through residency, not as much. Residency was not a particularly healthy period of time. And then when I graduated, I, that's when I met Dean, um, right as I finished residency. And I started with him on and off. And there was a period of time where I wasn't with him and I was with him. But now it's become um, intrinsic, I would say, to my functioning. Like, I feel like there's been periods through this pandemic, and Dean contested that, where there was long periods where I just, like I said, I just couldn't do it. I just was just like, it was all I could do to keep it together enough to keep what I have to keep going, going at periods, right? When you're so isolated and you're just not feeling like yourself. Um, but I did the best I could. And as soon as I could muster the energy to do it again, I just got back to it. But for me, when I'm in it, when I'm rolling with it, it is an intrinsic thing to my, to my health, to my functioning. I function better in every way in my life when I'm doing physical activity and because I'm so competitive and goal oriented, you know, like Dean uses that to his advantage, right? Because <laughs> I'll always want to push further, lift heavier. And I mean, it's heavier for me, but it's heavy for me and, and, and compete against myself. Right. And, and I feel better. I feel like I look better. It's preserving my ability to my mobility, my ability to function, like everything. So, and the mental clarity that comes from it is, I, I just think I'm just sharper when I, when I lift, I just am, you know, and then everything becomes easier. Well, I mean, and everything that you just said kind of uh, reaffirms the importance of emotional intelligence in any industry, but in training specifically, because you kind of spoke to the, the times when you just weren't really feeling it. And it's like, we can't always fix everything. Sometimes we kind of have to like lean into the situation that we're in. Like, not all of my clients are going to feel like coming to the gym, regardless of how much they like training. Um, and sometimes they are. But for me to be able to, to be able to support them in those moments is going to make it more of a long term thing. Like you talked about how you had started working with Dina quite a while ago. And it's just like you're still working with him. And so like what would be the difference maker? I would say like emotional intelligence would play a huge role within that. And so that kind of segues into something that we'll talk about later just with just like how we're all feeling through this pandemic and how it's changed just emotionally and everything but I kind of want to talk about like as your career kind of changed like you you mentioned how you had a bit of a private practice like what was that like what was that leap or transition like and what led to it um Jason Kenny. <laughs> led to that um as you know we had some issues with our contract being torn and thrown um and i'm purely hospital based and i was a little concerned about what might happen um and i don't know why i never thought about it before but necessity is the mother of invention and um i was actually um in the united states when i when we found out about the contracts and, and there was quite a lot of distress and that was before the pandemic hit. So we were very distressed um, by that alone and how it was being handled and how helpless we felt. And I thought, you know what, I need to be able to do something for myself here. Even if this is all beyond my control and I can't control how this government is treating us and I can build something for myself. And I called my mentor who is one of the, most brilliant men I think I've ever known in my life, Rowan Scott. And I said, hey, you know, he, he's been around a lot longer than me, he's seen the ups and downs, lots of governments. And I said, this is what I'm thinking. And he said, I'll meeting with all the rest of, of the practice that, you know, in an hour or two hours, I'll come back and let you know what they say. And it was just like that. I just had a private practice just like that. I negotiated space in the building that I'm in, which is Le Marchand um, mansion. And I did that a few months later when I was ready to make that next step and they had room for me and, and I haven't yet set the office up because I've been virtual and I'm just not putting patients at risk until, you know, everybody's mostly vaccinated. Um, 
but it flowed. And I really believe that when something is meant to be that way, it just flows. And I, like I said to you, I, I don't know how I hadn't thought about it before. I went into medicine for the story and I, you know, did a different kind of route for a long time. I worked you know, and I work in, I still work in the stollery and work with really medically sick kids. And I did that and I pursued, you know, a medical directorship and I did that. I was, a, I, I was a medical director for AHS and, you know, for the province, I, I did these things. And in some ways those were big ego things, you know, and, and I took care of their sickest kids. And I, I led the cancer mental health team and Pete's on, I, I did all of that. And now I was like, what do you really want to do? Like, re- what do you really want to do now? And now this is getting a little dodgy in this province. Like, what are you going to do? And what can you do for yourself? And what can you do to help empower women and make them feel strong too? When it's so easy when there's external circumstances that make you feel helpless. And this was kind of what was born from it. And so, you know, I'm pursuing a little extra training and like I said, sexual health and medicine, working with, um, and we'll be working with some of the physicians that, that do that area, gynecology and, and, and so on, and um, and family medicine that works in that area as well, that has a, a gynae focus. And yeah, there's just, there's a lot of people who um, want more for themselves and they don't exactly know how to, to deal with the past things that have happened to them and they don't know exactly how to move forward. Um, and through no fault of their own, we all come with a, a backstory that has some amount of you know, trauma and other things. And so it just seemed to me to be the the place that I needed to be. So that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, it can be brought to all kinds of different careers and just the sense that the more self-aware we are, the more we're able to kind of put ourselves in the spot that makes us the most fulfilled. Like when you talked about uh, your time in residency and how sometimes it was just like, you weren't really as self-aware as to what you needed to be to take care of yourself to the best of your ability kind of thing. I think there's many instances in people's lives when they fall into that just out of the blue and they might not be aware of it. Um, Some people might have fallen into that during the pandemic, just getting into this routine of just like losing connection with people or not taking care of their nutrition in the same way or... Uh, finding that there were so many barriers to fitness that it was just like, it didn't feel like it was worth it anymore. Like when I bring up all those things, like are there any things that pop into your head that you could speak to from like this, this past year and a half that we've uh, kind of gritted our teeth through? What made it difficult to maintain health? Well, just like your observations towards, uh, yeah, like, anybody's barriers or obstacles or experiences that kind of come that speak to you kind of thing. Well, I I think you alluded to at the beginning, it's like we're running a marathon and they keep telling us five more miles, two more miles. And we're like, are we at the finish line yet? And it's three more miles. Oh no. You know, (laughs) like now we're detouring you through this desert. Like they kept changing the end point and it's not their fault because having the microbiology degree I can tell you pandemics last a while and you know if we were under any kind of illusion at the beginning this is going to be a two week and done like that's just not how pandemics work they just don't right and so I think we were all hopeful that somehow we would get this thing suppressed down and it would just go away or but but we knew once we started to get the information out of Italy and, and God bless those physicians and, and, and Italy sounding the alarm once we heard what was happening there this was no flu. This was no walk in the park. This was no two weeker. This was, this was something big and it changed everything. And then, so what you're dealing with now is a chronic trauma. You're basically in a chronic ongoing trauma that has no end until it ends. Right. And in any situation like that, you're basically managing, you're mitigating, you have periods of reprieve and and relief, um, which we we've had between the waves and then you're back in it. And then when you're back in it, you know, and, and you've got lots of people, I'm sure well-meaning people trying to do what they think is the right thing. But, you know, medicine has taken a very firm stance at every beginning of every wave, hit it hard, lock it down, get it done, make it acute and short, but like close it down and let's get this thing suppressed. And that didn't happen, you know, in this province. And because that didn't happen, there was a lot of agony and a lot of suffering and a lot of suffering for people on 15 different fronts, including 
mentally, including financially, um, you know, and this is a big scale disaster that the world is facing, akin to a war, you know, like world, like a world war. And it's, it's never a pleasant thing to go through when you're going through something of that scale. And so, you know, the fact that we are suffering is what happens during something like this, but it hasn't made it any easier. And I think, you know, at periods it was really hard for them to decide what they needed to do, but in some ways those decisions didn't then made it harder, right? And so I'm not gonna blame or fault. I'm not in the position that these people are in. Um, I'm, it's easy for me to take a firm stance. I'm a physician, I preserve life. I took an oath at all of that. It's very black and white for me that we try to save as many people as possible. But that there were obviously other things to consider that, that people felt they needed to weigh you know, in the balance of all of this. But we have been in a situation of prolonged suffering and that takes a toll on you in every, in every way. And so, you know, there's gonna be a lot of my colleagues are gonna come out of this with post-traumatic stress. There's going to be remnants of significant trauma for them. There's going to be in the general public and has been lots of periods of anxiety, lots of periods of depression. You know, those are gonna have ongoing consequences. You know, every time they took put these kids back at home and we had to be, you know, doctor and teacher and, and you know, all the, the parents had to now adjust. Those were big things and those kids had to adjust too. And so we've all been through this roller coaster of, of, of ups and downs. And I'm sure there were periods for everybody where you could get it together to be healthier. And then there were periods where you just had to lay on the couch and eat Doritos and watch Netflix. Like, and that's okay. You everybody did what they had to do. We are still doing what we had to do. Um, and we are surviving. And that is the most important thing. This will end. Eventually it will end. No pandemic goes on forever. And we will recover in every way you can think of. And some of us will need more help than others. And, you know, we talk about the next wave is actually the mental health one. And it's nothing that we could have prevented. Um, it, the only way to prevent a trauma is to end the trauma. The pandemic has to end. And so that has been what we are all working for and why you're seeing such a huge push from medicine for everyone to get a vaccine, you know, get to get one of the vaccines in their arm because um, herd immunity is what ends this for us. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much to take away from all of that. Just the, the fact that like there are going to be people dealing with things after what would visibly be kind of the end of the pandemic, like the pandemic will kind of echo onwards, like whether it be people in the medical field having PTSD from everything that was called upon them for their job, or whether it be like a brick and mortar business owner that is still on edge a year from when they had their business in full operation. Like it's, it's going to be residual, but, um, with taking an optimistic angle towards this, like what, what is the positive that you see from someone experiencing like this? Like nobody's life turns out perfectly and nobody has things like without difficulty. Um, and in, in yeah. a lot of cases we gain something. So what would your thoughts on that yeah. be? Well, I mean, I can, I can say I, I take care of Albertans. Those, those people are my patients, right? I take care of Albertans and I've seen, resilience. I've seen my patients, lots of them are moms, dads too, but lots of the moms ask me how I am before I can even ask them anything about how they are. I've seen a sense of community, of love, of reaching out in ways that we had to become creative about because we physically couldn't be together. Um, care even for my kids, especially the teenagers, you know, wanting to know if I was okay too. It's, it's the humanity of this has, has made us I think, right? And, and you know, I mean, it's kind of cliche, but anything that really tests you does hone you. It hones your character, it hones who you become. You know, but I wouldn't wish adversity on anybody, you know, in spite of that whole scenario of yes, you become more when you're, when you're tested. But what I think I've seen is that I'm, I'm just better. I'm a better doctor. I'm, I'm more compassionate. I'm not, you know, I used to have a really sense that I was very separate from my patients because, you know, we do that because we, we it's, it's, it's a false separation because obviously we're just as human and can fall prey to disease just like anybody else. But I, I think I had a way bigger separation. And now um, 
there's much more cohesiveness for me. I, I, I don't see myself as different because I was struggling the same as they are, right? So it, it, it's made it a lot more human, I think, for me. I, I think I slowed down. I, I was like all over the place, you know, you know, trying to, to blend and balance a life of, you know, single girl, single mom, single girl. So, you know, it, like I was traveling. I like, it was a lot of stuff going on all the time. And I was able to slow down. I'm a better mom now because of it. I had my kids home like a lot, <laughs> you know, they got a lot more done with me. I think I'm a better friend. I think I'm more compassionate. I think I understand adversity. I've been through a few things. I mean, I was in a coup in Trinidad, you know, when I was a kid and that was scary. So I've had the feeling of not knowing what was going to happen next. Um, but this was a different kind of test because, you know, I was joking. It's a working pandemic for me. I, my patient load is way more now than it was. So I was carrying a load of other people on, and on me as well as my own self, which at times was a gong show. It felt like, right. Like just, in the, in the depths of winter when we were in like a wave and I was like, when is this going to end? And there's no sun. And I, you know, I just, and I don't even want to move. And I got to, I got to show up for my, for my, my patients and my family. But like, after that, I'm like, I'm on the couch and I'm eating Doritos. Like, I just can't do this. Right. So I think it tests you, but also the idea that there is going to be an end in sight and everything that we go through, there's a temporary feeling to it. Right. And at some point, I knew that there was going to be an endpoint, but I I had full compassion for how how much people were struggling and, and and to what depths they were struggling in. Right? I mean, all of us have been hit in one way or another, you know, financially or you know physically. You know, I knew people who had it. I knew people who were taking care of people who you know you know I, I, some of my friends are you know in the ICU and what they were dealing with. So I have a, a broader awareness of struggle that I don't know that I had before this, you know, other than, you know, day to day, when you're a physician, you're obviously dealing with people that are sick and, and there's struggle in that. But I have a different appreciation of what it looks like to face adversity and, and what it brings out in you, how, and how you, you cope with it and how some days you don't cope with it. And that's okay. You just survive and, and, and it's okay. You know, and that teaches you things too. So yeah, and I'm proud of my kids and how they've just sort of rolled with this. <laughs> my little man today was he's six. He's like, COVID's over in a week. And I was like, sounds good, bud. <laughs> in a week, we're, we're going to do it. So, uh, you know, like he's, he's, you know, they're just like, whatever, you know, and then he plays and it's all good. And so watching that too, you know, just the resilience, you know, we, we are a resilient species. These things happen to us periodically and, and we do survive. Um, and, you know, my compassion, too, for the people that we've lost, we've, we've lost a lot of Canadians, we've lost a lot of Americans, we've lost a lot of people. And, you know, it, it's just, it's just hard to, to, to know that and to, to see that, right? So. Absolutely. I mean, there is a lot of really good takeaways from that in the sense that uh, just kind of reflecting on, for me, what I got from hearing your experiences was just we don't know our boundaries until we're forced to find them kind of thing. Like somebody could be like build better boundaries for your life, for your personal professional life. And we're like, yeah, yeah. And then we don't actually do it. Or somebody could be like, um, take better care of yourself. And then you don't realize like what taking care of yourself is until you're forced to see what happens when you don't, or until you find yourself in a phase of your life where you just suddenly do like some people actually started sleeping properly because they didn't have anywhere to go. Some people started uh, cooking for themselves because of like things out of their control that forced them to either be bored and start cooking or they had to save money and started cooking. And then all of a sudden they realized like that was a way to get their nutrition easier. I like the boundaries part most though, because like for myself, I mean, I couldn't tolerate anything that was like out of my things that I used to put up with. I could tolerate outside of a pandemic inside of a pandemic. Couldn't, I just had to cut people off. I had to cut things off. I had to say no to a lot so that I could survive. And 
that piece of awareness is going to stick with me. And hopefully people are able to kind of like see those aspects, see those things that we wouldn't have been able to unearth or discover in any other way. We would have just keep kept like sweeping under the rug, sweeping under the rug until it got to the point that it built up and became another problem in our life kind of thing. I think it highlighted for me what is actually important and necessary, right? And what are the things that I miss most? I'm a pretty free-spirited kind of a girl. I, I like to be able to travel and get on a plane and, you know, but what saved me through this was, like you said, the boundaries of a routine. Having some, I had to provide some amount of separation between work and, and life because it's all happening in here. So I had to create some boundaries that, existed prior to this because I would leave the house to go do my job, right? Um, you know, the importance of family and friends and support and connection. And, you know, the smaller our bubbles got, and the less people that we could see how important physical touch is, how important hug is, how important being able to connect and be in the energy of others is. And then, you know, like you said, there were some things you had to cut out. I see most of everything that we do in terms of energy. And there were some things and people and, and other things that, that were such a drain that there's no way I could, could put my own life going in the middle of this whole trauma thing and keep those things happening too. And so it became very clear who and how I needed to be able to, you know, support myself like around and with and, and so on. Right. So there were certain things that weren't serving my life. And, and I know you follow me. So, you know, I'm extremely vocally an advocate around science and vaccines and, you know, and so, you know, and fighting against misinformation and, you know, all of the, the magical thinking of all of these conspiracies and all of that. And and so that took a lot of energy. But but I have a duty to, to provide that information any way I can provide it, because. I took that oath, right? And that's that's just what we do. And so, um, you know, a lot of energy went to that, to my patients, to my family, to my friends. And there wasn't a whole lot of time for things that weren't healthy for me or weren't serving me, you know? And, and, and I had to do things that were going to build my energy back up, things like exercise and making sure my nutrition was good. I my sleep's totally messed from this whole pandemic. Every time we're in a wave, I've got pandemic insomnia. But like, apart from that, most everything else, like I had to find ways to cope because my usual usual coping is to get on a plane and get out of here. And then you know the nurses can't call me and text me. I love you guys, but you know, <laughs> and you know they find you where you are. It's, it's endless, right? So I would physically separate myself to get that break, and I had to find ways to to do it here. And it's not perfect. It's easier to get on a plane and go somewhere else than it is to try to carve that out where you are, but it was necessary. So I think we've also found a lot of different ways to cope with the strain and the stress, and they're not our usual coping mechanisms. And we saw that every time the gym's closed, right? Because people depend on that space. It's not just because the equipment is there. It's the energy of the space. It's the people there. It's that everybody has a singular purpose and everybody's working towards the same kind of goal. You know, you feel supported there. Even if you're going there to work out by yourself and you're not with a trainer, you're still supported with the environment and the community. And we really understand what it means to be physically cut off from community now, which I don't know that we've ever experienced before, you know, in our lifetime. So I think it's those kinds of things where we really had to find ways to adapt, find ways to pivot, you know, and, and I think when there is hardship, that's really what separates people out is the people that are able to adapt, the people that are able to pivot, people that are able to, you know, look at something and, and find the opportunity in it or, or, you know, better yet are already set up for the opportunity. Um, that, that distinguishes you. Absolutely. Um, something that popped into my mind in the last like, couple of weeks is just like people are looking at the future and how um, their lives will change once more, uh, getting into a new routine again. Uh, we'll use like August or September, for example, like when we're into the, those months when majority of people are vaccinated, like a lot of businesses will have probably opened up by then. Um assuming that things stay safe and, and steady at that point, like for the people who still feel like reluctance to go and seek out community and go and reconnect, like the people who kind of are still kind of sitting in that fear and trauma, like how would you 
how would you support a person that that related to that whole experience? Like I I know where I would come from as a trainer, but what about yourself? It's normal. It's normal to still have the reluctance to be around other people after 1918. So this, you know, the the Spanish flu, um, you know, which coincided with the end of World War One. So they had a double whammy to deal with at that point in time. There was a period of about two years before people felt completely comfortable congregating. You know, they did the sort of the public health studies um, at the time with what they had and there was there was a reluctance to feel completely safe and so i think everybody's going to re-enter into society you know at a pace in which they do feel comfortable doing it and because we've had variants and mutations and which is normal for covid it's normal for coronavirus type you know type, type viruses um to do that the game has continued to change as well. They, not only is like the goalpost moving, but also that the rules are changing, right? And so, you know, you're saying we're going to be safe in August, September. I don't actually know that because of Delta. So, you know, we are, as far as I understand it right now, lower than the national average for first vaccine. So we need to be higher than we are right now for first. And then we need to be way higher than we are right now for second to actually be safe against this particular variant, which will likely become the dominant variant, you know, by mid-August if, if it projects the way that I think it's going to go. And so there's no guarantees, right? And so people are still reacting to the fact that it's uncertain. When it's completely certain, will you be like a little bit skeptical? Maybe. I mean, I think it, it's person dependent. I'm right now double vaccinated in alpha, which is um, the UK variant is still the dominant strain in Alberta. And I feel pretty comfortable, but is that going to be everybody? Probably not. And I'm still going to mask up and I'm not going to be stupid, right? Like I, I'm still going to be cautious, but I certainly feel a lot better than I did when I had one vaccine or no vaccine, right? But but Delta is a, a little bit of a different ball game because it is um, the one vaccine is only, I don't know, around 33% effective completely against it. So that's not a lot. And so we needed people to be double vaccinated. That's really what we need. But I mean, things are still changing in real time. This thing's still mutating and, and we don't know where the end point is. And so I don't blame anyone for being a little bit like, I don't know <laughs> about this. Is it okay now? And, and, and like I said, like based on past pandemics, that's actually pretty normal. So, you know, I think we just need to just understand that people are going to come back in as, as they come back in and, and, and we meet them where they are. You know, we meet them with, with the comfort level that they're at. If they want to continue to be virtual, you know, train for six more months, then so be it, right? Like it, it's, um, it's a big thing to come through. And, and by the time it's all said and done, it'll be a two year thing that we've just come through, right? That's not just a quick recovery from that. Definitely. Well, I mean, my whole thing is like, I, I tend to be an empath in the sense where I, when I can see somebody else struggling, I tend to like take that on myself a little bit mm -hmm. and just like the lessons people have learned with like uh, being in tune with their own emotions and what we spoke to about uh, just, I mean, Dean Somerset's ability to pivot for you in your ups and downs and the, the trends and stuff like that. Like, that's going to be a skill that's going to be incredibly helpful for people. Like we, we don't know what's going to, what it's going to be like two months from now five months from now, six months from now, it could be the year 2016 and we still wouldn't actually know. We've just always right. been under the impression that we knew. Right. Exactly. And I mean, that's just life, isn't it? Like we don't always, we can't predict what's going to happen. Things sometimes just come out of nowhere. I mean, get mental health supports if you need them. We're under-resourced. We were under-resourced before this happened. We're going to be super-duper under-resourced, right? You know, but get mental health supports if you need them. There is no shame in saying that this thing was so traumatic that you need help for it. Um, you know, it's what I do. I've always had colleagues. I mean, it's basically, you have to, I feel, when you're a resident, you know, get yourself looked after because you can't take care of other people if you don't know where your blind spots are. And we all have blind spots. We all have backstory and history that makes us behave in ways that are unconscious, that we don't, you know, consciously choose because we're programmed that way. You know, so, so we get looked after because we have to be looked after. We can't take care of anyone else. And to me, you know, same way you go to a gym and you train your body and your muscles and your conditioning and your mobility and your flexibility and your strength, you need to, to work out your mind. And part of that is 
getting people to help you to do that. Right. And, you know, on the spiritual side, you might take a more spiritual bent, you know, you do therapy with which, whichever discipline you choose, psychology, all, all of it, like look after your mind the same way you look after your bicep. You're not going to just, you know, let it like do whatever and expect to be able to pick up something that's really heavy. Your mind is under tremendous weight right now. We have gone through a tremendous weight, you know, do what you need to, to be able to, to pick that load up in the most successful way moving forward. And to me, that is getting whatever support you need, whether it's medication, if you need it, whether it's therapy, if you need it, whatever you need, there should be no stigma to getting help when you need it, especially from after what we've been through. You know, there is a lot of people that are probably silently suffering, thinking that they should just be able to snap out of it. People who've lost businesses, people that are struggling financially, have lost family members to this disease, have lost family members to other diseases during this period of time, you know, are separated. Like we're all carrying such a burden. Lean on your friends and family, lean on your loved ones, you know, use the people that are the supports in your life to help support you. Like people like Dean, you know, do the things you need to do, but take care of your health and in, in, in your mind, your brain's your brain. It, it, it boggles my mind how it's so stigmatized as though we have some magic control over the thinking, cognition, feeling parts of our brain. It just, just because it's intangible doesn't mean it's not this organ in here. And if that organ needs help, get the help, you know? So that's what I would say is the most important thing for people to actually make it through. I you know, absolutely agree. Part of our body. Yeah. I mean, um, my, my experiences with all of this stuff, like I have never been so just bluntly honest with people about like my mental health in any given day, like whether it be, I speak with my siblings or my parents or close friends, I will just tell them straight up what it's like, um, what I'm thinking about, like what I'm going through. There are some very, very dark days and there are some bright days and there's a whole bunch of meh days. And like, there's days when I'm like, Hey, like I'm like 40% and people can probably see it, but these are the things that I know that will help get me to like 60. And if I can average 60 for the rest of this week, then I'll be okay. Like it's just being honest about things like that, knowing that Absolutely. nobody's really running around at a hundred percent kind of thing. Well, and I think we've all kind of realized that our best and are good enough on any given day just has to be good enough right like that's the other thing too is that you know at any point in our lives what we need to do is do our best and at times during this pandemic our best was not our optimal our best was not our best ever but our best was our best and I don't think there was a lot of people that I encountered even in my role in in, in medicine as a physician that expected any much more of me than that, you know, because everybody is not feeling good right now. And so I think we have a lot more compassion and we're, we're giving people a lot more allowance for being human. And I think that's a good thing, right? Like we were under such pressure and impression, but you know, you're striving, you're working so hard and there's not a lot of you know, room to be human in that. Right. And like I was saying, there's so much stigma. If you have any mental health struggles, if you're anxious, if you're, like, come on, <laughs> you know what I mean? How can you not just be human and sometimes show up as a human and, and not, you know, you're not a machine there to perform. So like, I, I think that's an important take home from, from this as well, is that we need to allow people to be human. And sometimes people are not at their best, right? And, and, and that should be okay. So yeah, I agree with you. Like, I think it's, it's been that way for everybody. It's like, some days you're, you're, you know, you're hopeful and this is looking good. And then other days you're just like, I don't know if I need to get out of my pajamas and out of this bed. Like maybe yeah. I just need to clear, you know? And so I think we've all just done the best we, we can through this. Definitely. Um, throughout all of this, what is one thing that's happened that's brought light on a dark day for you? Something that stands out to you, whether it be in the last six months, last week, last year? My kids have brought light and love and hugs and kisses and jokes <laughs> and hope. Um, a few times I've been able to get up into the mountains and over to Vancouver in between the first and second wave, able to get to the coast, um, which was important for me to be able to be around nature. That was a huge, a huge thing. And like the love, the love of friends and family, like the love, like, cause 
you know, I, like I said to you, I'm a high achiever, like in medicine, you're not supposed to look like you're like, you're struggling. You're supposed to be like on it. You can't show weakness. I mean, especially how we were trained back in the day, you know, it just, there's no room for weakness in medicine. And I think we've had a lot of support amongst, especially the women physicians who are moms and, you know, just love and community. Like, so that part makes me hopeful for humanity, you know, that, that we're able to rally and really surround and like just my family too, like just knowing that people are there and they're rooting for you and they know you're trying your hardest. And, you know, when you're frustrated, cause I've been frustrated at several points with all this COVID stuff with the, you know, conspiracy stuff and, and misinformation and the willful spread of that. It's been very frustrating because I know that it costs us lives when, when that happens. It just, it seems like a benign thing. You're just talking, but it costs lives. Um, the love and the acknowledgement that, that I'm doing my best. And regardless, I could show up as a gong show and I'd still be loved. That, that has been really important. So I think that hope and, and my firm belief in science and the fact that I know that these vaccines are a miracle. They're a miracle. And they were 40 years in the making to get us to the point where we could actually execute this. Every brilliant mind on this planet turned their eyes to doing this in a singular purpose to, start, to save life. And I mean, if that isn't how amazing human beings are, I don't know what. So there's, that was like 17 things. <laughs> I know you asked for one, but it all rolls into the same thing. I just think even in the darkest days, I marvel at humanity. I, I marvel at our ingenuity and our ability to, to roll with it and, and be amazing despite the hardship. Well, I mean, all those are really important points. And it's the thing that I like about that is you're highlighting things of which some people have the capacity to do. Like I thought about it when I was at the grocery store, just like, just one small action is I can say have a nice day back to the person that's like running the self-checkout or the person that's like got the spray bottle at the door because they're human beings. And I think about how their interaction, their interactions mean the world to me during these times. Like if they're positive yeah. to me, I soak that up, but it's two-sided and it's going to be two-sided with every person we interact with, whether professionally or personally, whether it's our parents, like people older than us or younger than us, like every interaction is going to matter more than it's ever mattered before. And there's a lot of ways that we can kind of uh, help boost each other. Even if it's a little 10%, that 10% counts by quite a bit. Absolutely. Everything matters. I mean, I'm awfully chatty in the grocery store with a mask on because I just like, I'm like, Oh look, a human to talk to. <laughs> you know? And everybody's that way. We're, starved right now for connection in the ways that we used to have it and take it for granted you know humans are as they are and so there'll come a point where we'll forget that this ever happened the same way that you know we didn't live through particular wars and other things and we'll, life will kind of go back to normal but I hope a part of us never takes for granted a hug or you know a touch or to see someone's whole face when you're out in public or all of those things that that have become so important just to be able to, to touch somebody or to, you know, to have them be able to share bread in your home. Like, you know what I mean? You, you, we can't even, we can, can't even have dinners like the way that we were. And, you know, that's going to change shortly. Um, you know, whether it should or not is another question, but it, it, it will. And I, I hope we just don't take for granted those little things that have become so important now that we don't have them anymore. Definitely. So for most of my guests, I have them put out a challenge to the audience and it's a challenge of the day and it could be anything that you want it to be, but something that you think will make their life a little bit better or brighter during this challenging time. So all you have to do is say your challenge for the day is, and then just put it out into the universe. Don't overthink it. Just kind of think of what, what you would like to have everybody do. And, to, and tell you yeah, yeah. <laughs> what it is right on the spot. I just want you to hold in your mind that there is going to be an end to this. It is coming and we will all be together again. And the sacrifices that you've made, all of you, thank you because your sacrifices have meant that more of us will be able to come together when we all do come back together. You've saved lives. The way you put that, I think it, it's going to have people 
receive it in a different way than they ever have. I don't think people always acknowledge how significant the tough actions that they make are, but like everybody is looking out for each other in a way that they may never experience ever again in their life. I hope, I hope, I hope this is, I hope this is the challenge for our generations because I would hate for us ever to have to go through anything like this again, but know what you've done. All of you, you've made a difference. You've made a difference. So true. And with that, I would like to thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thanks for this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Chris. Oh, oh, oh.